This is the Bob Olin Show on KDAL. And good morning, Bob. Welcome to August, the first of August today, the first Bob Olin Show here on the final month of summer, according to meteorological summers. Oh, that's right. Boy, it goes by fast, doesn't it? <laughs> it certainly does. That's pretty depressing, actually. Here it is, August already. <laughs> it's very, very surprising. As a matter of fact, I was thinking that very thing, how the gorgeous morning for mm-hmm. everyone that's been out, it's, uh, it's really incredible. And I thought, you know, they, they they seem to have national holidays for everything. I think this area <laughs> should have uh, one or two days off when the weather is absolutely perfect where everyone gets to go out and enjoy it because uh we all know we've uh, we pay a little price for this gorgeous weather, don't we? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I like that idea. We could all take off today. Yeah, that'd be great, wouldn't it? We could all get out there and just enjoy it. But people, they, people want to get out, whether it's a walk at the noon hour or whatever it is, get out and enjoy this because it's uh, when it's when it's beautiful in this area, it's hard to beat. It's fantastic. Even a little bit of smoke in there isn't isn't near as noticeable as it has been in the past. So that's all good news. That's absolutely true, but uh, I guess the bad news is there's not a whole lot of rain uh, coming down again. It it really has been spotty this summer. We have some heavy downpours in some areas, but other areas get nothing. So I think we're uh, in Duluth officially at the airport about two and a half inches below normal. Still below normal at the airport. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in other places I know, and I grow in other locations. I have one location that's uh, so very, very dry and yeah. having trouble germinating fine seed. I had another location where I'd actually had all the seed washed out. I had oh, about wow. a four or five inch downpour. So, yeah, spotty, I think, is, mm-hmm. is your best definition. I know we got listeners that go actually all the way up into. Uh, in the northern part of St. Louis County, Kuchiting and whatnot, I know the northern part of St. Louis County had a lot of rain. They've had trouble getting that hay crop up. Where here they wish they had a hay crop to put up. Some wow. places it's been pretty light because they haven't had the uh, the moisture that they really need. But nonetheless, the weather today is perfect. Uh, we would like a little more rain in that forecast if you can work on it. But uh, in the meantime, we will we'll live with what we have. Uh, the bright sunshine during the day, cooler nights. I've mentioned this in the past. It's retained sugars mm-hmm. on so many of our uh, our edible crops, and it just retains that brilliant color on so many of our flowers, all the perennials and annuals and other uh, flowering trees and shrubs and plants. Uh, that brilliance is retained, so we really have tremendous color. you got to spend a little time. The old proverbial stop and smell the roses. The big kudos to the Luth Rose Garden. If you haven't been down there, you got to get down there. It's one of the most beautiful places on the face of the earth this time of year. And uh, you just got to spend some time. It's amazing how it's become a major tourist attraction. So many uh, of our local residents uh, don't find the time because it's right there in the backyard to get down there and appreciate it. But it's uh, it really is spectacular yeah. this time of year. The colors and the display uh, just really appreciate uh, uh, some of that beauty for yeah. sure. Family was up from Tennessee, and that was one of our stops, the Rose Garden. And I, I must admit, I stooped down to smell several of the roses. <laughs> Fragrance <laughs> is a big is a yeah. big part of it. And the petunia, or the, uh, the what do you call it? The other, the uh, blah, blah, blah. I can't think of the name of them now. Pe- uh, peonies? Or? Uh, peonies, that was it. Yeah, there's a yeah. whole bunch of those there, oh. too. Uh, they're spectacular, that mm-hmm. peony collection. As a matter of fact, uh, and we have a couple of local breeders. We've got the Duluth peony, and I should go back and, and look at the history of some of that, but we've had some real interesting local breeders that made a contribution <laughs> on the rose on the rose side. You know, we've got uh, Cherry Frost, which was introduced by one of our master gardeners that became a plant breeder, and uh, 
uh, just a tremendous, uh, beautiful cherry color, nice color to it, mm-hmm. and and so forth. That's gone. That's uh, locally bred, locally produced, and actually, it's been so successful. It's gone throughout the world. I understand, even wow. into China now. And to get in, get something like that introduced and propagated, the propagators are out in California, and we used to be able to easily get it locally because it was. Uh, produced locally it was slow to be introduced and then when it took off uh, it's my understanding that uh, they've got it in, into the major distribution channels so the home depots of the world have been distributing it and if you weren't there when their shipment came in they were all gone and they're kind of hard <laughs> for our local uh, nurseries because they can't order in those kind of quantities uh, that a home depot can right. and so they've had a little trouble getting smaller quantities but you want to look for that one uh, that's truly a magnificent uh, hardy shrub rose resistant to disease doesn't take any pesticides to maintain it's very very winter hardy and a tremendous uh introduction from julie oberam who uh amazing life story she was an ed tech and decided she had enough of working in the laboratory and she was middle-aged when she uh, decided to switch careers and went down to the university and uh, did some work there at uh on the saint paul campus in rose breeding it's a kind of a remarkable story and and went to work and she said she just wanted one introduction in her lifetime, and she was able to accomplish that. And she got a couple more coming, but uh, not quite so sure. It's interesting how they make these selections, and uh, it has to be something. There's so many uh, flowering roses out there that you really have to have something that's unique and very special and, and very dynamic in terms of color. And Cherry Frost has got this deep, beautiful red. They're just absolutely fantastic. And... Uh, but some of our other introductions said a little more subtle in terms of color. They're very good roses, disease resistance, winter hardy. They're perfect for the Northland and other parts of uh, the world where the, the winter climates are rather harsh. And yet she says, I, I'm not sure. She said, I love them because they're, they are subtle. They're beautiful colors, but not quite as vivid. So she says, I don't know if they will ever really be introduced. But she got, well, she got her lifetime introduction after about... 22 years of hard, dedicated work. So I think that's that's just a great success story on her part and for us in the Northland, for sure. I guess the neat thing about the roses are they bloom pretty much all summer long. I notice the peonies, at least the ones in my yard, go kind of quickly. They go very quickly, too yeah. quickly. And again, even though it's a little bit uh, cooler here than it would be farther south, mm-hmm. a lot of peony breeders uh, are a little bit farther south, and they'll get maybe... A week or less of bloom. We get a little bit more, but I think uh, you get two weeks or two and a half weeks, and that's about uh, all you can really expect of that magnificent beauty. But there's so many that are so attractive, so beautiful. By the way, we're coming into, we don't want to mention it, but peonies (laughs) is one of the... uh, one of those perennial flowering plants that we like to transplant in the fall. So okay. if you got peonies on your mind, this is the time of year. Everyone's thinking about planting in the spring. But peonies and iris are the two that really jump out, that love uh, fall transplanting, fall starting up here after about August 15th or 20th when uh, we get this little change in the atmosphere. But those are two things, if they're on your radar, iris or peonies, and I'm involved in putting in some public gardens, various places, and uh, those are two plant groups that are on our uh, fall planting list for sure. So something to think about. Bob, do you recommend uh, cutting down those peonies once the blooms are over or just leave them through the winter? Well, you know, we um, we always, you never want to cut any green tissue down. Okay. The, the actual flowering stalks, I think you can take off. But uh, green tissue, remember, we're, we're going to get the bloom, and then the rest of the year we're going to really be setting blooms, so we want... Uh much green tissue out there as much healthy tissue. 
You know, I mentioned uh, shrub roses and peonies. The great thing about both of those plants, we have very few problems. And uh, we may talk, I'd have the opportunity to touch a little bit on tomatoes. And tomatoes uh, can sometimes be just the opposite, where they have a lot of different disease uh, problems and issues. And and yet uh, peonies and shrub roses, for the most part, if they're good introductions, they just don't have any any difficulties at all. little minor pressure on the peonies sometimes in a little wet year, but not this year at all. We get some fungal disease there that can be a problem sometimes, but certainly not this year. And the shrub roses, again, the new ones, Julie Overham's introduction there, she was really looking for complete disease resistance, so you don't have to worry about uh, using any kind of a fungicide or pesticide to keep the disease under control. So, And actually, our climate tends to be, uh, tends to be humid, and that's very conducive on roses for uh, certain types of uh, powdery mildew, uh, black spot and other types of fungal diseases, but the shrub roses and with these recent introductions are are very resistant. So really, it's planting a little bit of uh, pruning, a little bit of fertility, uh, deadheading maybe when uh, some of the blooms uh, back off. But for the most part, they're just worry-free and uh, maintenance-free, and they really are marvelous uh, groups of plants. Shrub roses, and peonies really should be on on people's uh, highlight list for. Uh, ornamental in the garden. All right, Bob, let's head to the phone real quickly. Hi, who's this? Hi, this is Michael. Go ahead, Michael. <clears throat> Morning, Mike. Hey, I, uh, have, thank you. I have some, uh, I guess they're black spruce evergreens that uh, in the past years I've put tree, tree spike fertilizer in them once a year. I did it again this year in the spring, I'll say end of May, and I thought I remember on the package it's saying you can do it again in 60 days. I just want to check to see if it's recommended or, or is it wrong to try to stimulate them this late in the season? Well, you know, there's a couple of thoughts. I'm sure glad you called. Um, you know, the spikes, the fertilizer spikes are very convenient, and uh, they're going to generate uh, some fertility. The, the difficulty I have with them is uh, it doesn't spread horizontally. That fertility will be more vertical. And uh, number one background, uh, woodies like uh, spruce tree really don't require a lot of fertility. So uh, you don't have to be really concerned about fertility there. I would really rather, all of all perennial material like that, I'd rather have just an application in the spring of the year, uh, just as the buds are beginning to break. So a couple of thoughts. I really don't think it's necessary now. You're really probably not getting a lot of fertility from from the spikes that are in there, so it it may be kind of uh, it's a mute question. In other words, it's not going to do any harm because there isn't a lot of fertility there in the first place. But we never want to fertilize perennials like that in the fall. So we'll go back to the spring, a little fertility at that time. Almost rather have you spreading even a, even a lawn fertilizer without any herbicide. Uh, even a 10-10-10 as basic as that or a little bit of potassium, a little bit of nitrogen, uh, granular fertilizer right around the entire drip line. So if you spread this in the fertility, we'll talk about granulars, a synthetic fertilizer. If we spread it out over that entire area, then with the rain or irrigation, it takes it in through the soil and it covers that entire root zone area. And you really want to be conscious uh, when you're applying a fertilizer like that from the the main stem all the way out beyond what we call a drip line, which is the canopy of the tree. All the new growth in the root system is really coming from that outer rim or that outer area as the tree expands. So you want to get that area covered and uh, 
almost as if you were going to uh, be fertilizing the grass under there, but with a little bit more fertility, so it bleeds through the grass root zone and gets down to where the roots are from the uh, from the spruce tree. So there's a few thoughts for you on that. Uh, if you feel better, you could put some of the spikes in, and you have to be aware that uh, the directions are about utilizing the product, uh, so they may encourage more application than what uh, might really be necessary. That makes sense to you, Michael. Uh, it does. Thank you, Bob. So yep. if I if I pour the granular, don't don't have to dig in a trench. Just pour it around the the uh, circumference of the tree. Yeah, what I would do is I would spread it, uh, and and I know you mean that by pour, but you want to spread it out. You never want a concentration of any one of these uh, synthetic fertilizers because they're they're rather concentrated. If you take a look at uh, even a ten to ten is ten percent by weight. If you were just going to apply nitrogen. Uh, typically, urea, which you can buy at uh, outlets, that's 46% nitrogen by weight. So we never want to pour any concentrate. We want to spread it out and uh, spread it out through that entire area. But focusing on that area just beyond, if you look up at the tree, if you can imagine the tree being an umbrella, we have what we call a drip line, the farthest extension of the branches. So look up, take it out another 18 inches beyond that in terms of the circumference, because that's where the new growth is going to come from the roots, and it's that uh, fertility that aids the development of the roots. When we get the development of the roots, we carry uh, that fertility through the entire tree as well as encouraging more active growth. And that should be done just about at bud break in the spring of the uh, spring or late spring, I should say, early summer of the year. Right. Hey, Michael, thanks for okay. the call. Appreciate it. We're good, at good. Uh, 930. We're going to take a break and be right back. More of the Bob Olin Show coming up. Hazy sunshine this morning, 71 at the airport at 64 downtown, 67 in Superior. Air quality alert until 3 for that smoke from the fires up north. And we do have a light northeasterly wind. That could keep it a little cooler by the lake today. We'll see. Anyway, we're back with more of the Bob Olin Show. Good morning, Bob. Well, good morning again. That was an interesting call we had there on uh, some of the yeah. fertility spikes. You know, I thought uh, maybe we'd touch real quickly and remind people that any perennial material, with the exception of grass, and we'll talk about that, we really want to back off on any fertilizer applications. We want winter hardiness for perennials. we got to get them through this tough winter we have. So we don't want to encourage any lush green growth. That would be your apple trees. That would be uh, most of your perennial uh, flowers and so forth. We want to things, let things just naturally uh, settle down coming into the winter. Uh, we want the material to very gradually harden off. Matter of fact, the best type of a fall is one where we have a very, very gradual cooling in terms of our night and day temperatures so the plant gets to adjust and it goes into this uh, kind of period of suspended animation. Uh, perennials are still alive. Certainly the roots are still alive and our evergreens are still alive, but everything really, really slows down. So nitrogen in particular encourages rapid growth and coming into the fall of the year. We can have plenty of moisture. We can have warm days. And that plant begins to think that we're moving into the spring and summer months instead of into the winter. So we begin to do things like pop flower buds and other things that are a little bit uh, out of place. And if you pop the flower buds, uh, then you're not going to get any flowering the next year because the buds are gone. So we want everything to just kind of settle down, no fertility with the exception of our lawns. Lawns is just the opposite. Uh, we've got, uh, in the case of our common Kentucky bluegrass, we've got uh, a change that occurs in that particular perennial grass plant 
where it begins to, instead of kicking out blade tissue, the green portion, it, it, in the fall of the year, it kicks out underground stem tissue, rhizomes and stolons, which run right along the surface. And uh, it's the stem tissue that gives you a thicker lawn the next year. So that's why we want to make a fall application of fertilizer, a nitrogen fertilizer, right around uh, Labor Day. And this will encourage the development of a real nice thick lawn and not a lot of blade tissue. If we apply fertilizers to lawn in the spring of the year, it's natural growth cycles to kick up uh, leaf tissue, blade tissue, and you'll do a lot of mowing. It could be nice and green and thick, but uh, you're going to do a lot of excess mowing and you get a lot of top growth with, uh, with nitrogen applications in the early part of the year. We're in the fall right now. Uh, you don't see that. You won't do a lot of mowing. Uh, it'll be lush, it'll be green, but the big thing is you're you're strengthening the grass plant by fertilizing the fall. So perennial material, no fertility. Fertility in the spring when they're actively growing for perennials, whether it be trees, shrubs, flowering perennials, the grass is different. That's where if you're going to make one application of a fertilizer on your lawn per year, it would really come in the very early uh, early fall months, late September, early or late August, early September, and then cut everything off by about October 1st. So the month of September is when we really want to take care of the lawn. Well, my lawn well, now, uh, the, the rabbits and the, uh, let's say, I suppose the pollinators are all happy because it's clover season, apparently. My lawn has, has gone over to the white clover plants. Uh, this is great. The clover <laughs> being the one uh, one component. You know, at one time, everyone wanted to eradicate it. Ah. Uh, that picture-perfect lawn that's just uh, grass that, that looks almost like astroturf. No one wanted <laughs> any clover in it. Then we got to this concept of bee-friendly lawns and people being very conscious of the fact that bees have to have something to survive on, so they live on the nectar and the pollen for uh, for their food sources and they got to have a food source throughout the year so a lot of the white clover white clover is so nice because it stays close to the ground you can mow above it without taking those flower heads off and uh, you can appreciate it so uh, there were so many so much herbicide that was applied to lawns to eliminate uh, that particular broadleaf plant it's a little different than some of the other broadleaves like like dandelion so they went after that one now and i think it's a good thing we can tolerate that clover Clover is a legume. It takes nitrogen from the air. It naturally puts that down in the ground through a, uh, a wonderful process uh, of uh, nitrification. And uh, the underground stems use it. The grass uses it. So it's really a pretty good companion plant to go along with uh, your grass species that require nitrogen. So I know the rabbits like it, too, and I'm not sure why, but the rabbits are munching on clover like crazy. Yeah, they uh, they appreciate that as well. Okay. So I'm sure you've got a nice nice rabbit population oh, yeah. that you're building there. <laughs> I don't know which is worse, deer or rabbits, but everybody's just out there trying to make a living and find lunch, right? Yeah. Well, the problem is the rabbits used to be kept in check by the fox, and I don't see any fox around anymore, so the rabbits are just going crazy in our neighborhood. We need to yeah, import some no. more uh, predators, I think. <laughs> And red fox is such a beautiful predator to keep yeah. the population down. <laughs> uh, I happen to have a family in the neighborhood that's Do uh, okay. doing a nice job of keeping the rabbits. And mm-hmm. One of the saddest things for me, if I ever see a red fox killed on the road, a tear comes to my eye because, oh, yeah. uh, you know, they're not aggressive. They just uh, keep some of the uh, predator species like rabbits under control, and they're kind of <laughs> beautiful as well. Yeah. Well, yes. Bob, let's take another break, and we'll be right back. More of the Bob Olin Show, 940 now at KDAL. 
Well, Bob, everybody's wondering when the tomatoes are going to be ready. Are they getting anywhere close yet? I guess it depends on how you're growing them and how early you started them. We've got a few ripe tomatoes. Uh, you know, if you really want to get a start in the greenhouse and buy those big plants, uh, some are ripe at this point. But for the most part, we got a little little ways to go. All right. uh, that crop that crop looks pretty good. You know, I mentioned the fact that uh, they can be vulnerable to disease, hot, dry weather, and in some cases, uh, that's what people have. Or uh, weather where we don't have continuous moisture, that's what leads to some of the fungal disease. Early blight, late blight, septoria, leaf spot are the three common ones on tomatoes that cause us some difficulty. But I don't see a lot of that evidence of that, at least in the plots I've got at a couple different locations. Uh, they look pretty clean at this point, so we're very fortunate. Tomato, of course, you know, Dave, has uh, a real interesting history. It is the number one uh, backyard garden crop in the country, and even commercially. Now, the number one horticultural crop commercially happens to be uh, potatoes, and it's mainly because of the French fries that we make out of the potatoes. And and uh, actually, a tomato comes down in, uh, after that about number three, but it's certainly uh, a major, major crop, and it is the number one garden crop. Remarkable, you know, it originated down in South Africa, South America, and then the Spanish conquistadors. So many of our crops that came out of South America were uh, harvested there and, and uh, used by the Aztecs and other mm-hmm. groups for food supply. And then they went back to Europe and never got to North America. They came back to North America in this roundabout way. The Spanish came in and they went into Spain and then up into France, typically, where there was a lot of and to this day, a great deal of emphasis on food, food quality, culinary skills. And then from uh, France, a lot of folks would uh, brought them back or they discovered them there and they brought them back to North America. And, uh, you know, tomatoes kind of unique. Thomas Jefferson was noted for the tomatoes he grew at Monticello and uh, uh, had beautiful gardens there. And he, he saw the tomatoes in, in Paris and brought them wow. back. They weren't nearly the magnificent tomatoes we have now. They were very small. They were like diminutive cherry tomato. But the breeders, they breed very easily. So we've had just so many, uh, literally hundreds, if not thousands, of tomato varieties out there. As a matter of fact, I was asked to select once from my top 10 tomatoes for the area. And I said, boy, narrowing it down to 10 is a challenge. <laughs> I was able to find in the catalogs, retail and commercial and wholesale, that I had 1,500 different varieties to pick from. So that's just what I had available. So I'm sure that there are are thousands of varieties. And it's a good thing. It's a southern crop. It wasn't well suited for certainly northern Wisconsin, northern Minnesota. More like Florida. And I think we might even have some listeners, believe it or not, down in Florida that have gotten in touch with you. That World Wide Web is amazing stuff there, Dave. You can listen all over the world. Yeah, it is a Florida crop because I did have uh, some comments from uh, someone down in St. Augustine, uh, Florida, so I hope he's listening today. But it's their crop. Certainly during the wintertime, we import a lot from uh, Florida and California. But uh, warmer, warm season crop, done a lot of breeding, so we get our shorter season varieties. They grow very, very nicely for us. In the nightshade family, the cousins are, are both uh, potatoes as well as uh, eggplant. Solanaceae, and there's a, a deadly nightshade that contains solanine. Tomatoes, of course, are not poisonous, but for the longest time, uh, it was assumed that they were poisonous because wow. they are in the nightshade family. And there's a, there's an old uh, story about a gentleman, I believe his name was Johnson, Robert Johnson, that uh, loved tomatoes. Uh, he grew them up in New Jersey. New Jersey, incidentally, pretty big tomato production area, the Rutgers uh, 
uh, college has been responsible for a number of uh, very good introductions there. So they must have a real long history, but it was way back in the 1800s that he, he was a hobby uh, horticulturist and he ate a half a bushel of tomatoes on the court steps of the old uh, courthouse there in Salem, New Jersey. And when he didn't keel over dead, all of a sudden this uh, wow. impression that tomatoes were poisonous was debunked. And that was about in the uh, the early 1800s. From that point on, tomatoes were accepted in this country, and they, they morphed from uh, a crop that was grown mainly ornamentally. Uh, for that purpose, they morphed into the number one garden crop uh, in North America, certainly in our area, in, uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin as well. I'm Great very surprised surprised that you mentioned they originated in South America I would have I would have guessed uh, Europe or Italy especially where some tomatoes are such a big part of their menu absolutely such a big part of uh you know all the salsas and, and right. the pizza sauce and whatnot no South America and they hmm. it was the Spaniards that brought them right. back and introduced them back into Europe wow and it started in Spain and they went from Spain throughout the continent into Italy as you mentioned into France and then uh, as uh, our country began to develop in colonial times, it was uh, people like Thomas Jefferson brought some of the first tomatoes back into the United States, and, and they just went from there. But as I say, uh, so many varieties. We're always looking uh, for new varieties. Uh, if there's uh, There are a couple things that stand out to me this year. We've got more disease resistance coming in some varieties, so we're looking at natural disease resistance. Uh, we're looking at uh, uh, some of the paste tomatoes. Paste tomatoes typically have been indeterminate. They're hard to manage. Uh, they've got the two big types, determinates, which will stop growing and start setting fruit when they get about uh, three feet in height. The indeterminates want to keep right on growing, so they become a big kind of gangly mess that you have to prune back and, and other things. And most paste tomatoes have been indeterminate. We've got one called Zenzia, which is the first determinate paste tomato, which is... Yeah. Again, much easier for homeowners to handle because it'll grow up to three feet, easy to stake, easy to cage, easy to manage. You don't have to prune. And we're taking a look at that one to see if, in fact, it produces for us uh, in the Northland. So always new introductions in tomatoes. Uh, they're always looking for something even better, even though we've probably got 10,000 varieties literally <laughs> out there throughout the world right now. Uh, green tomatoes, are those, is that a special breed of tomatoes, or is that just a tomato that hasn't gotten ripe yet? Uh, that's a tomato that uh, really hasn't gotten ripe okay. yet. And, uh, of course, uh, we've got people that specialize right. in that because uh, in a cool year, of course, uh, green tomatoes are uh, our specialty because we have trouble wrapping them. And I'm assuming there will be a lot of green tomatoes again <laughs> this year, along with a lot of ripe ones. And sure. It's kind of fun. I uh I had I was working at one time with a breeder down in Homestead, Florida, looking for uh, varieties. They were selecting varieties that were resistant to the hot temperatures down there. To get wow. fruit set, you really have to have relatively moderate temperatures, 75 degrees night and day, to get the pollen tube to grow. And uh, so we were looking for those that would resist cooler temperatures. And he was looking, this breeder was looking for... Uh, tomatoes that would resist intense temperatures we actually found one variety that they they called heat wave that did pretty well for us here in northern minnesota because it set the fruit under adverse conditions our adverse conditions were cold temperatures his adverse conditions were warm temperatures but it's kind of interesting i remember our first conversation i said i was from duluth and we have 
trouble writing trade. Oh, you assumed it was Duluth, Georgia, you know, oh. the Atlanta <laughs> suburb. Goes by the name of Duluth, and he says, well, I don't really understand why you have trouble writing tomatoes in Duluth. And I described the temperatures. I said, well, we're not talking Duluth, Georgia. We're talking Duluth, Minnesota here. You got a kick out of that, and uh, we had we had some fun over the years just uh, exchanging some plant materials and notes on how these things uh, really grow. But Homestead, Florida, a huge uh, tomato production area for the United States and the world. And uh, But for backyard gardeners, uh, we certainly uh, – we can do a pretty darn good job with tomatoes. We're two, three weeks away from getting them right for the most part, though. All right, Bob, we'll take another break and be right back. Uh, the final portion of the Bob, Bob Olin Show coming up. All right, Bob, you said they're a couple of weeks away from tomatoes being ready, but there are a lot of crops that you could find at the farmer's market that are ready now. Oh, boy, lots of crops. And uh, if you had adequate moisture, it's mm-hmm. been a really great year. It's kind of remarkable. We've got lots of cucumbers bringing in a lot of uh, certainly beets, beans are all ready to go, peas. Uh, any number of, uh, of crops are coming in, carrots are beginning to come in, and some tomatoes for some people. Mm-hmm. But that, that'll be a, a crop that uh, the, the large bulk will come in just a little bit later. But the farmer's markets, the benches are full, all the summer squash is a teeny and and actually, some garlic coming in early, which uh, typically wow. garlic will be uh, be pulling that out of the ground typically about uh, two weeks from now. So because it's been warm and dry, if there was adequate irrigation, adequate moisture, uh, some of the crops are coming in a little early, and the benches are are filling up for sure. So the little farmers market, the original farmers market, uh, since 1906. I believe, 1908, uh, the original building, it's remarkable, it's been moved, but that's 14th Avenue East and 3rd Street, uh, where you can actually talk uh, talk to the grower. So uh, it's not a, a retail market where who knows where the product came from. You get to talk to the people that actually grew it. So it's uh, it's a fun day. That's 2 to 5 on Wednesday afternoons. Great time to shop because it's not quite as busy, and there's a lot of product comes in because uh, the gardens haven't been harvested since prior to the Saturday market, so there's a lot of time that elapses there and typically a lot of product on Wednesdays. So Wednesdays, 2 to 5, Saturdays, 8 to noon, fun time, family-friendly music, uh, just a nice vibe. So that's the Duluth Farmer's Market, uh, 14th Avenue East and 3rd Street, Dave. All right, and the kids uh, get to pick one of their uh, their favorites for nothing, right? Absolutely. They get a $2 token that they can <laughs> spend on produce at any one of the booths. The kids love that. Uh, we see a lot of kids... Kids from infants through a teen uh, all get a, uh, a token, mm-hmm. and uh, they really enjoy that. So that's our market's way of trying to encourage better eating. And, you know, I just had last night, as a matter of fact, nice meal, little garlic, little zucchini, little onions, uh, <laughs> all very, very fresh, just sautéed wow. together. And uh, if you got onions out in the garden, sauté up those greens because, boy, they are nice when just a little olive oil. So using the greens on beets, using the greens on onions, uh, use, use the entire product this time of year. It's nice and fresh and viable. And, you know, you feel a little better when you're eating good, wholesome food. It just uh, makes your day uh, go a little better all along, uh, Dave. Well, if you're up uh, late tonight or up early in the morning, you can check out the, well, one of four supermoon events that will be taking place. Uh, tonight's scientific name of the uh, sturgeon or harvest moon is the perigean full moon which occurs when the moon is full during its closest point in orbit around the Earth, and one of those is uh, tonight. So get out and check it out. It's kind of cool this morning, I noticed, that through the haze from those fires makes it pretty spectacular looking. 
Oh, that's fun. That's good to know. Mm-hmm. I always learn something uh, listening to KDL. Ah, good. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. That's actually going to be two. Tonight we're, we're working out in the field. Yeah. And we've got plenty of moonlight. Oh, that's good to know. There's going to be two of them this month, actually. It's a blue supermoon predicted for August 30th. So you get a full moon on the 1st and the 30th, and the second one in the month is called the blue moon. So there you go. Oh, that's a, I was aware <laughs> of that, but I didn't know this was the month. 1st and the 30th. Fantastic. All right. Thank well, you very much. We'll catch you back here next Tuesday as we'll be into the second week of August already next week. Yes, we will, for sure. All right. Uh, thank you, and thanks to all of our callers. Uh, enjoy this beautiful day in Duluth. All right. Have a good week, and we'll catch you next Tuesday. The Bob Olin Show here on KDAL. The Bob Olin Show has been brought to you by... Dan's Garden Center, located inside Dan's Feed Bin on Hammond Avenue in Superior. And by Matilda's Dog Bakery and Pet Nutrition Center in Lakeside across from the Lake Walk.